Hey all, Arthi here. I'm on week three of my maternity leave in my baby cocoon. It's wonderful. And in the meantime, we are bringing you a wonderful past episode of Art of Power. It's with the creator of a celebrated TV show, one of the most celebrated on the planet, in fact, a TV show that has changed the lives of countless people in ways that are hard to size up in ways we may never truly know. Want to take a guess? Hope you enjoy. So many minority groups' identities are under attack. Trans, migrant, Muslim, black, so many of us who have these identities, we wonder how can we flip the script, make what is hated beloved. David Collins has done that. He took gay men, long targets of vicious attack, verbal, physical, legal, and made them superheroes with the power to groom. When you got to sit down and watch these five gay guys kind of swoop in and be silly and fun and laugh and be themselves and be these superheroes, it opened the door to have conversations that I think otherwise would have been a little little sticky, a little scary for families to have. Today on Art of Power, how David Collins used reality TV to change the culture. He is the creator of Queer Eye, one of Netflix's greatest hits that's grown to be a global phenomenon. He went from closeted Christian boy in a small town to big-time producer on screens the world over. Through luck, smart, and stamina, he built a vessel that has brought millions to his house of worship. Quite frankly, I believe in my spiritual self, God chose a moment to show something to me because I was meant to be a vessel. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Queer Eye is one of the most celebrated reality TV shows on the planet. The original version on TV and its Netflix reboot have been nominated for a combined 20 Emmy Awards and won nine of them. Such a great time partying with you all. Unfortunately, we got work to do. You're coming with us. It really was this idea of like queer, different, a different perspective, a new way in how you look at something with a unique eye. And the queer part just happened to work really well. You throw five gay guys into the mix, and it works. David Collins pioneered a concept that many dismissed as too ridiculous to work. He proved them wrong. We're going to get into how David Collins helped orchestrate a culture-shifting show, the remarkable creation story behind it, the extreme ups and downs. But first, I want you to rewind even earlier. Okay. Just to get a little sense of, you know, David Collins, (laughs) born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah. So who was little David? I was born in in the summer of 67 to... um, 
the prom king and, mm. and queen. My dad was the jock and my mom was the, the cheerleader. And I think they, they really thought that they had the world in front of them. And I was their, their firstborn son. His parents, and specifically his dad, knew he was a little different. He said to me, he said, David, you scared me as a little boy. Mm. He said, you were so joyful and alive and, and connected. And you could walk into a room of adults and just start talking. Those sound like great qualities. What's scary about that? Right. I think I scared him because, honestly, I think they both my mom and dad knew that I was different than the other little boys. I I wasn't shy or embarrassed to sit down and play dolls with my cousins. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think they knew. Mm-hmm. And you were church going too, is that right? Yeah, we were uh, mm-hmm. Southern Baptists. Evangelical Southern Baptists, which you know, I, I definitely was the little the little gay boy who sat in the pew and listened to the fire and brimstone stories of the preachers who were mm. telling me that I wasn't, uh, you know, not only was I going to burn in hell, but that who I was was inherently bad. Hmm. David recalls a spiritual moment when he was around eleven. He was sitting in Mason, Ohio First Baptist Church, listening to the pastor. Uh, the pastor on a high horse about homosexuality. And I can remember just like that knot in my stomach and that just twistedness and feeling so sad and begging, and I mean begging God not to make me gay. Please, please, please Mm. don't make me gay. Please, please. But I knew, right? I just knew. Oh, what a horrible inner monologue for an 11-year-old. Yes, right? Mm -hmm. And I look at that little boy now and I think, oh, God bless you. How do you do this? But here's the twist. David, who was around the same age as his two daughters are today, he was both flogging himself and knowing he should not flog himself. I heard a very clear voice say, just because he's up there in that pulpit doesn't mean what he's saying is true. And Hmm. um, I had a truth moment where I knew, I knew that, what he was saying wasn't true and that God loved me and that I was a child of God and that I was going to be just fine. Just to understand this at 11, begging for you to not be who you are, yeah. but then also realizing you're fine and accepted by God. Yeah, quite a quite a complex there. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I haven't told this story, but I'll I'll uh, <laughs> I'll tell you something that um, when I was fourteen years old, it was uh, the beginning of my sophomore year of high school. I had met uh, a senior boy. <laughs> he was my first boyfriend, and we skipped school the first week of school mm-hmm. and went to the zoo. David says he was a model student at the time. He helped out the principal. He played football. He acted in the school play. Then he goes and skips class with his boyfriend one time, and he gets suspended. They used me as an example, and they suspended me from school for skipping school one time. But there's a twist in this story. David and his boyfriend have a talk. He's like, I want to go to New York. At age 14, I packed everything I had, and I ran away to New York City. For that. Yeah. 
Like permanently, or you came I back? Fl- well, I, I flew. Okay. And first of all, I bought a plane ticket. At 14? At 14. <laughs> wrote a letter Wrote a letter to my parents, like a very long, in-depth letter to my parents, and uh-huh. put it in the mail, and got on a plane and flew to New York City. And mm. um, I ended up staying in New York from September to February. Oh, my God. On my own. I lived in the Belvedere Hotel at West 48th and 8th in a studio apartment. I had started my college fund, and I had $3,000, and he had $5,000. And we went to Woolworths and decked out our little studio apartment. Oh, my God. I remember Woolworths. (laughs) The The older senior didn't make it. He freaked out and went back to Ohio. I stayed because I had gotten a job at the Yale Club. What? At, for Yale graduates. <laughs> you ready for this? As a bar boy at 14. No. I'm so, oh, yes. Serving no. cocktails to all the Yale graduates. David Cobb, you know I'm fact-checking the story, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> My parents hired a private detective. And the detective uh, followed me down and got me to the Yale Club. My boss was a woman by the name of Ruth Ormston, who came and said, Hey, I got a call from some man saying that you're a 14-year-old runaway from Ohio. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She said, can you just go down to your locker and get me your driver's license, please? I didn't have any ID. I was 14. We did fact check the story with David's mom and dad, who say it's all true. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but yes, it is. That's basically how it went. That's dad, Jerry Collins. He said he was the one who called the boss lady. David took off. He decided to go back home to Ohio. He described himself back then as confused, uncertain, scared of his own shadow. Which didn't exactly sound right to me. I mean, y- you know your story. It is your story. But when I hear a 14-year-old <laughs> David getting a plane ticket and bouncing with his older man boyfriend <laughs> to New York, <laughs> renting a spot. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't hear scared little boy running. Mm. It sounds more to me like, huh, David Collins... You decide to be a bad boy for one day. You get punished for being a bad boy for one day. Yeah. And you don't like being punished, so you bounce. Well, out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what happened. Yeah. And that in that moment, I think I look back on, I obviously caused tremendous pain for my family um, mm. during that time. Mm. My, my mother... Back in the day, you would call it a nervous breakdown. Hmm. It ended up uh, in in some treatment. Why did you need to go that far away for so long? I do think that I was trying to figure out who this little boy was and what is he going to do. Because I... um, I knew I I was hungry for a lot and wanted more and wanted to to Hmm. explore more. David Collins, the 14-year-old gay runaway from a teeny farming community, he had a voracious appetite for the finer things, which one finds at the Yale Club, and of course, for adventure. In the eyes of the kids back home, he was living the dream. I was, I was kind of half freak and half hero. Mm. It was first like, oh, 
Mm. That's that guy that ran away to New York, right? A lot of that. Uh-huh. And then there was a like, yeah, dude, how was it? <laughs> Rock on, high five. It was clear very early on that David Collins would not become a future farmer of America. And as he tells it, the path to iconic television producer, it was paved with dumb luck and divine intervention. The fall after I graduated from Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, in 1989, uh, I went to the Cincinnati Film Commission. He worked for this organization that tries to get TV and filmmakers to set their movies in Cincinnati. And the film commissioner's like, ah, can you get in your car and get to the airport? Uh, she's like, you're going to pick up a couple of producers. Don't talk to them. Just get them to the hotel in downtown. Ended up picking up Jodie Foster and Peggy Reisky, who were there about to direct uh, Jodie's directorial debut, Little Man Tate. I, of course, didn't stop talking the entire way from the airport. You were that driver. You were that driver. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just didn't stop talking. But it worked because Jody leaned in and said, hey, I'll see you tomorrow morning at 630. Wow. And I was like, um, okay. She invited him in. He became production assistant. That's how he got his first break, though he thought it was bigger than it actually was. The punchline is... The next morning, I showed up in a three-piece suit in a briefcase, walking into the Westin Hotel, and the production team, all in this room, uh, you know, female power, girl power, and here walks in this little guy in a three-piece suit, and they burst out laughing. After he cut his teeth, he got to work for another great director. He moved to Boston. He started an independent production company of his own, Scout Productions, with a man who'd become his husband, Michael Williams. One Sunday afternoon, David and Michael go to a wine and cheese. It was open studios where all the artists would open up their lofts and invite people in to see their art. And as we were coming up the staircase, there was some scuttle going on. There was some, some, some noise. You could tell something was happening. Because in the middle of the room was this woman berating her husband publicly, literally saying to him, look at you. Why do you dress like this? Come on. Seriously, your hair's a mess. Why can't you be like them? And she points across the room and in the corner of this room with, you know, wine in hand and a little bit of cheese and crackers were four immaculately dressed kind of style gentlemen who literally was like, and action. They slowly turned and started walking towards the center of the room. They surrounded her husband, who was being berated, they started to kind of comfort him and lift him up and praise him. Like, no, look, fix your hair like this. And they tucked his shirt in and fixed his belt. And along the way, the, they turned to the wife and like, it's not you help someone. You don't tear them down. We lift them up. By the way, the room has gone dead silent. I turned to Michael kind of without missing a beat. And I was like, did you see that? That was like queer eye for the straight guy. No way. Really? Those words just rolled off they your tongue? Rolled out of my tongue. And and to this day, 
Um, as they came out of my mouth, I, I felt like all the hairs on my body stand on end. I got goosebumps. It, it was it was nothing short of otherworldly, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, I believe in my spiritual self. Uh, God chose a moment to show something to me because I was meant to be a vessel, and and that's it. I, I'm not this mm-hmm. creator. I'm not some magical creative genius. I just happened to be at the right place at the right time to see something, to witness something that I do believe was part of evolution, was part of the God needed a voice to to tell this story. I went home that night and had what I would call automatic writing. David wrote the concept for a show. A fabulous team of gay men would swoop in episode after episode to save a hapless, helpless, disheveled, lacking self-confidence straight man. While God showed David only four gay men at the wine and cheese party, David added a fifth to make them the Fab Five. I was really, really into Esquire magazine at the time. It was the only thing that kind of made me feel hip and connected. But they broke their categories down into fashion, grooming, interior design, culture, food, and wine. That's a beautiful creation story. (laughs) Beautiful in its effortlessness. Not that David isn't a hard worker, but here he was not trudging along with clenched teeth, pushing through a miserable to-do list. He was simply doing what he loves on a Sunday and fully present for the peculiar moment that unfolded right before his eyes. He was following his bliss. That phrase, you've heard it before, likely. It came from this famous teacher who studied mythologies around the world, Joseph Campbell. He said, if you follow your bliss, you put yourself on a kind of track that has been there all the while, waiting for you. And the life that you ought to be living is the one you are living. Now... Selling the idea, that was not bliss. I did something that I think still today informs how we go out and sell shows. We created a a little baby magazine of the show, a little pitch book. It was a little lookbook, think mini version of Esquire. And we did a, a photo shoot and I shot Michael and three of my buddies all in these various positions of one had a, a blow dryer and the other had a, a pot and pan in his hand and, and the other... Had hangers. He took it to someone he knew, a TV exec, to see if she might buy, bankroll the show. And she literally just was like, what? Like, are you kidding me? Mm. Queer Uh eye for the what? Queer eye for the straight? (laughs) But soon after, her team called back. They called back, like, you know what? This is just crazy enough. Let's do a pilot. They shot the pilot. And then it sat there, collecting dust, until Bravo, a cable channel with older viewers, half its audience was 50 or over, gave David the green light. 
Yeah, we'll air a show featuring young gay men. Where'd you get this couch? This is really quite something. Like yes. no, this one we got from Siemens. From Siemens. <laughs> yeah, I have a oh Siemens my couch God. too. <laughs> the first order was like ten, and by the time it was almost two years later, by the time it had aired and gotten on, we made 120 episodes over a four-year period. But it's the closest thing I've got to a kiss from a straight man, so I'll take Queer Eye for the Straight Guy was part of the reality TV movement that took off in the late 90s and early 2000s. The reality television at the time was definitely nasty. This is the true story. True story. Seven strangers <laughs> picked to live in a loft. It had an edge to it where... Uh, I, I think America in particular really liked to watch the, the battles and the hair pulling. Full disclosure, I was addicted to real world. It was all about pettiness, backstabbing, drama. And, and there was something about, about what we were doing, about what Queer Eye had an opportunity to do, which was to, to take these heroes and, and tell their stories. How did you ask her to marry you? I took her to Central Park. Oh, and man, we did a little walk and uh, broke down and cried and then asked her for... <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> and bro asked her to marry me. And this wasn't always just a physical transformation or I got a new couch or a new dress, but mm -hmm. I had to be seen and heard and validated and laugh, right? And laugh along the way. If you want to be touched, wear fabrics that invite touch, like velvet, cashmere, and suede. Ooh, that tickles. That's what I think was special about the show is that these guys were silly and fun, and yet they brought uh -huh. they did it with heart. Mm. That's al dente, and that's delicious. After the break, David Collins and his TV show helped spawn a cultural revolution, and casting is key. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. If you've watched Queer Eye, you know, each one of the Fab Five is a huge personality, like enough to fill up the room alone. There's Tan France. My family still asks, so when are you going to marry a nice girl? Uh, I'm like, ah, uh, I've got something to tell you, Mom. Jonathan Van Ness. How do I delete all of those old topless pictures off the internet? I don't want any more. Anthony Porosky. Please, keep this wonderful fruit of the summer out of your fridge. It's a vegetable. Bobby Burke. Oh, so, oh, what happened here? And Karamo Brown. For a date, you're walking around Walmart? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and somehow they fit in the room on the small screen together. How does David find this eccentric yet harmonious cast of characters? David says he learned a lot about casting from the original Queer Eye. Here's what he did. He narrowed down the Fab Five applicants to 50 guys, put them in some rooms in Rockefeller Center, and he basically held rounds of speed dating, looking for that special je ne sais quoi. One man kept standing out. In Carson Kressley, 
David saw his center square. They've got all sorts of great clothes for Lomos. I know it sounds like homo, but it's Italian for man. He was loud and silly and smart and an expert in, in what mm. he spoke like. He knew fashion inside and out. Your show is obviously, it's getting reviewed. It's a cultural spectacle. We don't know yet that it's going to be a phenomenon. Yeah. And among the reviews, for example, the Baltimore Sun says, Carson is the most stereotypically effeminate <laughs> member of the team. And some might find him a little hard to take uh. at first. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, it's interesting to look back at that and think about that. Um, yeah, look, my own internalized homophobia, my own fear of of putting that out there made me nervous. It made us all nervous, right? But there was this beautiful confidence in Carson that, um, and, and through his humor, that he he broke those walls down and pushed right through. Carson challenged David's idea of masculinity without making him shut down. Carson kept people open. I spoke with someone else who auditioned for that original Queer Eye cast, someone who did not make the Fab Five cut, Rob Eric. I go for my audition and I think I kill it. Like, I really think I got at least got a call back. I think it was like four days later, Carson thinks he blows it. Four days later, Carson gets a call, but I don't. So now I'm like, screw them. <laughs> now I'm pissed. Happy for Carson, mad about me. <laughs> oh, Rob. It was chemistry, right? So there was kind of that chemistry thing with the other guys. And he, he didn't perhaps uh, make that final chemistry knock. But what he did do was he's so funny and fast and smart. And it was it was he who came in and, and helped craft and create the original theme song, the original logo. All of those things were Rob in the back, uh, you know, behind the camera. There's a lesson here. When Rob Eric auditioned for the show, David immediately recognized an amazing talent. Rob was great, just not for the role he wanted. David did not let the door hit Rob on the way out. No, he put him to work elsewhere as a producer for Queer Eye, an invisible mastermind steering the vessel. David does not waste talent. I wanted to talk to David Collins because very few people can credibly claim they have changed our culture. He can. But before we get to that monumental feat, let's dive into David the businessman. Specifically, David totally reimagined the product placement industry. If you watch Queer Eye, you'll notice the Fab Five recommend all sorts of clothes, makeup, furniture, appliances to their client and indirectly to us, the viewer. This podcast executive producer bought a pasta maker he saw on the show. Here's another little new baby. All right, what Do you is know that? what this is? No, I don't. This is a pasta machine. It needs it and it pumps it out. Wow, this is fantastic. I wrongly assumed some TV network execs were negotiating deals with brands and telling the Fab Five, you got to use this or that product. Totally incorrect. What in fact happened back when David was signing Queer Eye's first TV deal, 
he pushed hard to control the relationship with brands, to control in-show product placement, and any extra money that could come from that. Scout's president, Eric Korsh, says that's how David turned Queer Eye into a business and not just a show. Eric says his aggressive and annoying and painful push for more rights, more control, etc., paid off in many ways that both he and I could not have seen, but he certainly knew it would be important. How did you know to do that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I knew how to do it, honestly. But what what I did know was that, look, if you're going to hire five experts who are going to help you in these five verticals, you want to allow them to be experts. You want them to bring to the table the right solution to the problem. David says he didn't do it for business reasons. It was quality control. He wanted to protect the Fab Five, their client, and us from suits and corner offices dictating what we see and use. Take, for example, arbitrary example here, Crest White Strips. Yeah, Crest White Strips. They're a great product, but Crest now needs you to get that in every single episode. And now I'm inauthentically giving you Crest White Strips. Oh, hey, you should have Crest White Strips. People don't want to watch commercials inside of their show, right? They, I see. They, yeah, they, exactly. they, they don't want to be told what to do. And so then the, the business lesson with Crest White Strips is you're thinking, oh, okay, well, if I can just control that part of it so that some exec isn't saying you've got to get this in 10 times or five times, then that gives us creative freedom and maybe they'll end up being financial upside too. Correct. Correct. Okay. Yeah, we get, to, we get to have kind of the best of both worlds. David's business savvy helped Scout production survive during brutal dry spells. Here's a cold, hard fact. Even after David proved himself as a master producer of a hit TV show, the doors of opportunity did not fling open. Queer Eye became one of the highest-rated programs in Bravo's history, with over a million viewers per episode right out the gate. When Queer Eye ended on Bravo, David did not own those rights immediately. They were signed over to the TV network. David had to move on. He had plenty of other ideas, but when he went to pitch them... First question, so, do you have a Queer Eye for us? And we're like, oh... Yeah, and, and, and Queer Eye kind of became an albatross, right? It mm-hmm. kind of became this thing that I would carry around on my back, and I was oh, it's the Queer Eye guy. Mm. David will never forget those years when he and his team got pigeonholed and typecast and failed with the few shots they got to take. It broke me. It broke mm. me. And I didn't want to be a one-hit wonder. You know, it was that, <laughs> oh, moment. When the show rights to Queer Eye finally reverted back to David Collins, he was like, awesome, I can let everyone who's been asking know. Hey, I got Queer Eye for you. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, that's a little too bravo. That's still a little too associated. (laughs) And so I was like, you've been asking for, for Queer Eye for the past 10 years, and I brought it, and now you're no. So we had this weird window where everyone said no. The Netflix deal was a kind of Hail Mary. David had no options. A talent agent of his mentioned, there's this company that used to mail people DVDs. They're doing this thing called streaming on the internet. 
They're a streamer. They were looking for an evergreen format, uh, something that had international appeal and something that had uh, a kind spirit. The original show was fighting for tolerance. Our fight is for acceptance. Tan France, one of today's Fab Five, sums up progress. When Queer Eye premiered in 2003, same-sex marriage was illegal in every state in America. Today, it's a federally protected right nationwide. It can be tough to gauge what exactly moves the needle. But I'm confident in this. David Collins' show was part of the grassroots movement that made this unprecedented change happen. The Fab Five, the original, were true trailblazers. Mm-hmm. They were, it, it was not easy to go nationally public to say that you're gay, but then you're on this show, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. They took big risks, right? They didn't know what was going to happen. None of us did. Mm-hmm. But for them as individuals, I look back and I, and I say to the, to the new guys even, right? Like, they truly did the heavy lifting uh, for all of us in the, in the, in the LGBTQ evolution mm. of, of, of time. Do you think that the original Queer Eye made it safer for people to be queer? Mm. Wow. I'd love to think so. Um, the original Queer Eye took some sting out. I'll put it that way. Took a little bit of the sting about that that stigma, the gay stigma. Uh, we used to get hundreds and hundreds of letters, and those letters were so beautiful to have a mother write you and say, you know, um, my family sat down and we watched Queer Eye together, and it made it comfortable for my son, my daughter, to turn to mm-hmm. us and begin a dialogue about themselves you know we got a lot of letters from older gay men who had wrote wrote us to say we never thought in our lifetime that we would be seeing uh, a show like this ever that pain and that fear of a little gay boy or little girl is Mm -hmm. is so intense it really is so when you got to sit down and watch these five gay guys kind of swoop in and be silly and fun and laugh and be themselves mm-hmm. and in the car, you know, where they would laugh with each other and giggle and all of that and 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 be these superheroes. Yeah. It opened the door to have conversations that I think otherwise would have been a little little sticky, a little scary for families to have. There's something that you just said. You just use the word superheroes. And that yeah. what strikes me is you took a group of people that are villainized and you made them not just the heroes, but the superheroes yeah. of the show. <laughs> That's like a really powerful subversion of the norm, right? Yeah. 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 Very few creatives can claim, credibly claim, that they've been able to make the world safer for a community. And listen, you said it tentatively. I'll say it for you aggressively. I think you did that. I think a lot of people can say you did that. It's a very unique thing to do. What's the lesson in what you did for other creatives? Because many people have that goal. 
Yeah. Few people affect that goal. Mm. Well, I would say for myself, what I've done smartly is surround myself with really other loving, caring people who also are willing to be vulnerable, tell their story, share their truth with me, and that we all kind of throw it into the pot together and, and work mm. as a collective. Um, the, the, that for me is probably the most important part of this is that I can't do this alone. This is a we deal. This inside out work that we do, um, is, is based on, on all of us being able to kind of put our pieces in the middle, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly. And then we all get to stick our hand in and pull the good out together. Find your tribe and get to work. Find our tribe and get to work. David Collins, with eyes that shimmer like a child's, says he feels a little grown up for the first time. I'm a daddy now. And as a daddy Mm -hmm. with young children, what a beautiful uh, journey and story that I get to share with my kids. Because my kids aren't growing up with a fundamentalist Jesus hating world, yeah. right? They are right. they are getting the opposite of that. They're being born into a family and saying like, "Hey, God, mm-hmm. I love you for who you are. Just be you." And lifting them up and sharing that. That's that's uh Please finish your thought. I I was just thinking like that for me is where I I get to land as a 53-year-old David these days and look back at my journey mm-hmm. and think, if this is what I get to do for my children, that mm-hmm. they don't have to have that same pain and weight of mm-hmm. being that little 11-year-old boy sitting in that pew. David Collins changed the world. So can you. My lessons from his journey. One, follow your bliss. When you do so, you put yourself on your path. You knock on doors meant to open for you. Two, use your leverage. If you need creative control to make something great, make the case to others, maybe more powerful players, and secure your financial and legal rights. Three, find people who share your deepest intention, people who have the right chemistry, and build your vessel. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Hina Shravastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, made you stop, think, feel, hit subscribe. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. They really matter, folks. Tell your friends and family there is nothing like a referral from a friend to keep us going. Let me know what you think. You can text me at 917-708-5139. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi411. Guest ideas, feedback, whatever. All right. See you next week.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.